Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Dat Bao, Senior Lecturer in Education at Monash University in Australia. Dr. Bao, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. Yourself? I'm doing quite well. Should I call you Dr. Bao or Dat? Uh, please feel free to call me Dat. Oh, thank you. Very much. And feel free to call me Jonathan, even though I'm not a doctor. Thank you. That's all right. <laughs> it's good to, to hear that. Yep. It'd be funny if there was the opposite, where I don't have a PhD, but I, I'm actually asking you to call me doctor. So have you ever have you ever come across something like that before? I guess it's always no, the other way but around. I'm always tempted to call everyone doctor or professor to show respect. Yeah, it's it's funny because there's a gentleman I know, Jeffrey Stewart, who is a previous episode on the podcast series, and he mm -hmm. recently finished his PhD. Right. And he said one of the greatest things about finishing his PhD is he didn't have to correct people anymore that he wasn't a doctor because people mm -hmm. had been sending him emails for 10 years, Dr. Stewart, Dr. Stewart, mm -hmm. and he always felt strange about it because he wasn't a doctor. So it was kind of a relief for him to finally finish mm -hmm. his PhD. <laughs> mm -hmm. Interesting, is it? But you're right. I Even myself, I, I've started my PhD, and when I get correspondence from people, they normally say Dr. Schachter. And mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't really know what to say about that. Uh, because I'm, I don't really want to correct them because it's an email, but I, it's a, it's a strange, it's a strange feeling. When did you, when did you finish your PhD? I finished my PhD 2002. I had a very smooth um, pathway on the way from university to graduate study, so I finished quite early. Wow! So you've been you've been a doctor for quite a long time. Quite like 18 years. Wow! But uh, I stopped feeling like a doctor already. I what think, do you, what whether do you mean? you're a doctor. Um, be before I became, um, I got my doctoral degree, be people, people didn't trust me. Whatever I say, people <laughs> feel, why you? But now that I have a doctoral degree and I've, I've got a few publications out there, people begin to listen to you and they think because you've got a doctor, you become smarter. But that's not true. <laughs> so, wait, so what do you mean? So in, in the, when you first got your PhD, you found people listened to you more and now you're, you're finding... That yeah, la later in life, you're... People, people, people listen to me increasingly more because first, I had a degree and, and second, I had a number of publications. But I think there were, there were interesting ideas that I developed when I was a student. Mm. And those were exciting ideas that I carry on with me into my career and I, I pursue them as research topics. Mm. And they are the same thing that I said over the years before and after I got my degree. But I think it's the degree that makes a difference in people's thinking about you, you know? Yeah, I think that's true because I think a lot of people can have exciting ideas, but not many people have the grit and determination to finish a PhD. So yeah. I think it gives yeah. you a bit of credibility, not and just to I have agree. the idea, but to, to, yes. to even get through the publication process. I mean... Yes, it's, it's quite difficult and not, not many yes. people have the constitution to deal with failure. I don't know if you were rejected along the way, um, but some Abs people are rejected uh, early yep. on and they have trouble rebounding. Yeah, I think there was a time when I started teaching at university with just a master's degree and then people listened to me less than mm. listened to my college. So that was maybe the first motivation why I started embarking on my PhD study because I felt like left behind. Mm. But I wouldn't undermine the degree in any possible way. I'm just telling the truth. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. Um, all right, so today's book chapter, 
is in a great book uh, recently released, East Asian Perspectives on Silence in English Language Education. Yours was chapter number two, but actually the first chapter because yes, the first chapter was just sort of an introduction. So way to go. Why did they choose yes. yours to be uh, in a concert? Uh, you, were the le- you were the first act. I have no idea, <laughs> but I was approached by both Jim King and Seiko Harumi. And they they both read my work as much as I've read there. So we kind of admire each other very much. We are in the same field. And I think our PhD were all about silence. That's another thing that connected us together. Mm. Well, for people um, maybe just listening to the show now, Seiko Harumi is is episode one. And Jim King, I forget the name of the episode, uh, but he, he, there's, a, there's an episode where we talk about silence with, with him as well. So if people would like to to listen to those episodes, they're they're very interesting. Today's chapter, though, is Silence, Talk, and In-Betweens, East Asian Students' Responses to Task Challenge in an Australian University. Um, before we jump into the, the chapter, um, can I ask you a little bit about your background? What What led you to your interest in silence and your academic journey that brought you through Thailand and a few different countries and now in Australia? Thank you very much. That's a very big question, but I like it. Um, first of all, why research silence? I think silence is something that has followed me in most of my career as an academic. Um, if I trace back to where it started, it probably started since the time I was a primary school kid. I was a very talkative kid. And back in Asia, in many classrooms, when you are talkative, it's considered as wrong behavior. So I had to learn to be silent. And so I was developing my silence throughout my primary years. And then when I went to high school, we started to learn English. Then my teachers were very upset because I was a very silent student in the class. I didn't participate in discussion. So teachers said, look, you can't graduate. If you keep your mouth shut, you have to, you have to speak. So I went back on a journey whereby I learned to, to speak again. And then I started my first job in Thailand because I, I, my university was in Thailand. I was born in Vietnam. But then very early on, early on, I moved to Thailand. And I started my, um, after university, I started teaching English in, in Thailand. And I realized that many of my students didn't speak much in the classroom, which somehow makes teaching very difficult. And up to that point, I asked myself, why can't we be ourselves in learning? Why does the system keep bending us against our will? Why can't we be happy learning in our own way? Mm -hmm. So that was a starting point when I developed interest in talk and silence at the same time. And so when I went to um, the UK, it was in Leeds. Then I started off my PhD um, on the topic of silence and reticence. That's interesting what you said about how even growing up in Vietnam, your yep. teachers tried to curb your personality. I had the impression that Vietnam, Thailand, Korea, Japan were all slightly different as far as mm. personality mm. curbing in the education system. I know, I know Japan, they're very, right. they're a big proponent of silence. Yes. Um, teacher transmits student, you know, hears. Yes. Um, I'm surprised to hear you. I, I've never been to Vietnam, but I've met Vietnamese people and they seem to be quite outgoing. I would yep. say more outgoing than Japanese people. So I was surprised to hear you. So 
Are you saying generally speaking in East Asian countries, that is the, the sort of rule of thumb in the education system, but they, they do very slightly? I think Vietnam is very comparable to China into as far as education systems are concerned. So when, when I did my um, research project ab about Chinese silence, I learned similar thing. Um, many of the students said to me that in high school, they were conditioned to be quiet. Listening is a virtue in the classroom and then when they moved on to college teachers started to encourage them to speak out more and because they have so long been conditioned to be silent in high school that it became very hard to break this um, inertia and become mm. a, a verbal person so i guess around asia there, there's a tendency to to condition students um, in the classroom as more of a listener than a, than a speaker that's a really interesting point. In a previous episode with John Wiltshire, he's from the UK, and we were discussing pedagogical approaches of, of Westerners. So in a, in a Western education system, a teacher might throw out a question just to elicit a response. And actually, the teacher doesn't care if the student gets it right or not, but they'd like to c collect some sort of response. So mm -hmm. it's like you said, when you, when you got to high school and your teachers were asking for a, for a response – it's sort of a way different teaching approach where we actually don't care if the student gets it right. We just want them to be engaged and start thinking about it. And if they get it wrong, it's a chance for the teacher to correct almost the entire class. And that student's a vehicle for an idea where you said it's almost a, a, a virtue of silence. Um, or even when you're talking about China, you know, Confucianism, that this, this yep. sort of virtue. So I guess it would be kind of a hard transition to, to go from being told be quiet and listen to now speak mm -hmm. because it, right. like you said, it's, it's going against your inertia or your own person, yep. your own instincts, right? So mm -hmm. if a teacher is telling you at a young age, sit quietly and don't speak, that's got to resonate for, for mm -hmm. years after, right? Definitely. Definitely. And as someone who, who experienced two different sets of uh, educational systems, both uh, East and West, I could say there's a tendency more in Asia to judge quality of your performance. Like when you open your mouth and make a contribution during lesson, um, your the quality of your participation is, is subject to judgment. The teacher will make comment and whether the teacher like, likes it or, or doesn't like it, um, whether it's right or wrong, valuable or not meaningful, the teacher will be in a position to tell you when in the West it's not the case. Well, that's interesting because that even goes beyond the classroom. There was a study by Ota and he was, he was interviewing Japanese students studying mm -hmm. in Australia and within their friend circle, they actually judge themselves outside of class in parties and, and so forth about which, which person made the most mistakes. And mm -hmm. the person that made the least amount of mistakes had the best English. So oh, even outside of the class, they were judging mm. each other's mistakes. Um, that's with, very interesting. Yep. So this this idea, I know me studying Japanese learners, this idea of perfectionism is another cause of, of silence, which is really mm. difficult when you're learning a second language, because of course you're going to yes. make a lot of mistakes. And that's part of the learning yes. process. Speak, speaking of uh, perfectionism, I had some experience in Japan about... Because people keep telling me Japanese struggle to learn English and people's level of English is not good. But I never believe because I had a number of colleagues who visited Australia. Their English was just superb. So when I went to Japan for research, sometimes I give seminar and I had an interpreter with me and she's very good. 
um, the thing is, sometimes I, I crack, crack a joke in halfway through my conversation and the audience burst out laughing even before the translation came. Mm. But when they ask, can you speak English? People just don't respond. People just don't, don't want it to be recognized as English speakers, but they understand everything. Mm. Yeah, they're, I think they're very good at listening in Japan, mm-hmm. um, which, which is something you talk about in your chapter about yep. how there's a hierarchy, a perceived hierarchy, whether it's right or wrong in the language classroom that speaking is more important than listening. And you actually wrote a, did you write a book about that subject where you talked yes, about the talk silence hierarchy? It, yes, there was a book called Understanding Silence and Reticence. Um by Bloomsbury, um, 2014. In that book, I, I did mention the idea of hierarchy and I was trying to kind of do away with that idea of silent and talk being opposites and being weighed differently in terms of values. Can we talk about that for a second? Because that's, yes. that's really interesting to me because yes. I, I, you know, growing up, I was very talkative and I had a big personality and I would get in trouble, the teacher would write on my report card, he talks too much in class. They didn't really tell me to be quiet like you did. Um, Because I think in American society, you're really sort of encouraged to, to, you know, have a big personality. Um, But as I've gotten older, I would say after 30, I'm much more likely to be quiet in social situations. And so when looking at myself as the talkative person, I remember looking at shy people, I it's sort of in wonder, why are they why are they shy? Why aren't they talking? And I was had my own opinions about why they weren't talking. But now as an as someone I, my personality shifted, I almost respect people that don't talk as much. My my mm-hmm. my idea of intelligence or personality has totally shifted mm-hmm. from when I was a kid till till now. It's it's such an mm-hmm. it's such an odd thing. Did your now your personality was shifted from outside influences? But do you have an yep. opinion about that? About viewing shy people when I you were I outgoing? Very, yep, I think I had very similar experience with you. When I left um, my country in 2000, um, what, 1994, 26 years ago, I left home. I, I had different ideas about silence because I was exposed more often with verbal participation in the classroom. And so I started to question my own silence. I thought, should I be talking or should I keep my own silent? And that I was torn for a long time. But when I first became a researcher that was in Leeds, um, England, northern part of England, 1998, I got enrolled in a PhD program. I used to approach silence as a problem as well. But over the years, having researched into the theme for some time, I actually chose to step back and tell myself, silence can be a problem, but look, Talk can be a problem too. Both silence and talk, um, after I've collected data, sufficient data, tell me that both silence and talk can be meaningless and meaningful, can be excessive Mm. or uh, moderate, can be timely or untimely. They're actually more similar than we would have thought. And so Mm. I began to question the idea of dichotomy, I started to think that silence and talk actually do not have to be opposites anymore. Mm. How do you feel about that? Yep. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I respect silence much more than I used to. And in Japanese society, that there's pros and cons to everything. 
And one thing I really like about Japan is, generally speaking, it's a very quiet place. I mean, just uh, wherever you go, people don't really talk in a loud voice. People are quite reserved. I mean, there's different there's different personalities, of course. But I do appreciate a more toned down environment, uh, especially compared to maybe a, a Western country where people are talking in loud voices all the time and there's less silence. So as I've gotten older, I appreciate silence much more. And the, the quality of words you speak are maybe more important than the volume. And just because you're speaking the most or you're the first one to speak, it doesn't mean anything. I, I used to think it was important. Like if you're the first one to speak, that means you're the smartest, right? <laughs> but that doesn't, that doesn't mean anything. It just means you're, yep. you know, it, it, it really, what does it mean? Like you said, what, what does it mean if you're the first one to speak or the last? There's so many mm. different reasons why that could be the case. And it's 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 a hard thing to research. Yes, yes, I agree with you absolutely. And and it's really interesting when you mention the word quality because that is something I've given a lot of thought to. And in in my own research, um, speech quality comes a lot from silence, especially the way you use silence. Um, recently, I wrote an article which which I share in um, um, this um, website called Academia academia.edu you can if, find the article it's yeah yeah if you um, um if you after the show if you can send me the link i'll i'll put that on yes. the show description people I, can I will send can it it's called yeah. yes it's called the place of silence in second language acquisition in which i challenge the idea of talk being output and silent being input hmm. but i actually turn the picture around a little bit and i say actually silence can can be output as well and in that article, I argue that words before being spoken out loud exist as an auditory or visual information in our consciousness as inner speech. So mm. I'm trying to say inner speech is a type of production. Thinking in a language provides practice, which is arguably as good as speaking it. Um, process such as um, automization automization of, of language continue to operate, I believe, both in the mind and in conversation. So I, I was trying to argue that silent contains output. Well, uh, I, I would totally agree because my background is music. I was studying to be a professional trumpet player until I was 25. And right. wow. there, there's nothing more important than silence. I mean, mm -hmm. it, and even when you're a musician, the breath is really important. You yes. know, that, that silence in between phrases um, yes. The rest periods. I yes. mean, without without silence, there is no music. Um, mm -hmm. So, I mean, you you have this this quote in the beginning of your chapter. You say silence can be colonized by talk, of course, mm -hmm. but meaning cannot. That's right. So it's an interesting thing. Silence can't really exist without sound, of course, and sound Definitely. can't exist without silence <laughs> as a perspective. Um, so we need to find a balance where we're conveying meaning and emphasis without being judged on how long we're doing either one, I guess, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's a great conversation to have. I, I, really, I really enjoy talking about these type of studies. And so let's maybe jump into the chapter. It's uh, Silence, mm -hmm. Talk, and In-Betweens, yes. East Asian Students' Responses to Task Challenge in an Australian University. Now, this was a group of 10 students Nine yes. females and one male between the ages of 25 and 50. These were students yes. that were studying a master's of education 
And yes. they were three from Japan, three from Korea, three from China, and one from Mongolia. And mm-hmm. they were they were studying. You said different universities throughout Australia. Now, uh, at first, yeah, at first they were from different university and then transfer. So the moment I met them and interpret um, interview them, they they were at Monash University. I see. Okay, so these were all all the interviews took place at, at Monash. That's right. Okay. Can you talk a little bit about why you decided to to do this project? And can you talk a little bit about the methodology you chose? You, you talk about it in the chapter. Uh, methodologies yes. as far as interviewing technique and these things, I'm a little bit unfamiliar with because I'm more in the objective, you know, heart rate sort of research. Okay. Yeah. Um, so can you just talk about the the design of the study, what, what made you uh, do these interviews and, and the methodology you chose to collect your data? Yep. I think, first of all, let's talk about the focus. I think I had this focus um, because a lot of people have connected silent with different things, but not many people actually thought about connecting silent with tasks. Hmm. Historically, people have connected the reason for silent with teacher personality, teacher receptivity, Hmm. peer bonding, classroom atmosphere, teaching content, linguistic ability, and social psychology aspects of the learning process. But hardly anyone look into tasks. So the the first thing I thought about, I would research on is um, is looking at tasks and silence. And at that point, I I got invitation from Seiko Harumi and Jim King to participate in a book. And it happens to be East Asian silence, which is something that I, I can do because I had quite a range of students coming from this background. So I, I agree to, to pursue this topic for the book. Um, in terms of methodology, I think I happen to be in a faculty called, it's called Faculty of Education, Monash University. And this faculty has a, has a strong tradition of qualitative research. People want mm-hmm. to look in, into, in, in, in depth um, into um, ethnographic study into phenomenological study whereby they look at critical incident, they look at lives, they look at cases. So I got influenced by that, although when I was doing my PhD in the UK, it was both, it was mixed method, but Mm. I learned a lot from my colleagues. So phenomenological research is something that jumped out at me as, you know, critical when you, when you capture critical moments during, um, your research, then, then it will open up venues for more understanding. You might follow them later in the future with mixed methodology. However, w- when you start off, it's like testing the water. You want to see what's going on. You want to see how deep you can go. And so I, I decided to conduct this project using phenomenological approach, which means you look at what come out as important, as critical, as from from real life of students so that you can tell a story. So this chapter is very much about telling the first story about how tasks influence students' choice of silence and talk. Now, some of your inspirations for your methodology, if we're looking on page 73, mm-hmm. uh, apologize if I mispronounce their names, Cresswell, right. 2008, Moran, yes. 2000, Sokolowski, 2000, and Miriam. Are these yes. colleagues from, from Monash? Uh, no, they're actually scholars. Some of them are the gurus 
in the field in methodology. So a lot of people use them because they open up ways of doing qualitative research. So I happen to quote very much the same thing as many of my colleagues, but they are not within the university. I see. Okay. And then uh, one thing you mentioned in your data collection, on the foundation of academic ethics, when stressful moments took place during data collection, the researcher would invite the participant to take a break or consider quitting the session altogether. Can you talk a little bit about that? Was this this a language barrier thing where they were becoming fatigued? Um, I think I think um, ethics, ethical research is something that Australia in general, Australian higher education system is very worked up about. When I was in the US um, and when I was in the UK, ethic was not that important as long as you conduct a scientific project with logical route or progression, you're fine. But the moment I came to Australia, we had I had a lot of training in terms of ethics. Because between the public and educational sector, there was tension. People sometimes like criticize um, academic as conducting unethical research. For example, I don't know if this is true, but they clone animals and they combine animals into a new kind of species. So people disagree with that. And part of it is fictional, but then the university finds that finds it important to actually address these issues in public. So we form um, an ethic committee in the university. And mainly in scientific research, when you talk about working with human bodies or animals, but over the years, they develop this understanding into human feeling. So if a research project um, happens to have multiple data collection tool that waste time of participants, then you need to step back and say, you are you are giving them trouble. They are tired getting into the interview with you, or um, you are asking them about trauma traumatizing experience in the past, and, and they they don't feel good being 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 asked those questions. So every time now we we want to conduct a research project, we have to submit an ethic application to the university, and this is not just uh, Monash but across the continent. So part of it yeah, is to I, explain I, that you're not making, um, giving, giving trouble to your participants. Yeah, I'm aware of the, I'm, I'm actually pursuing my PhD at Macquarie University. Yep. And oh, the, okay. the, the ethics process was extremely rigorous. And yes. unfortunately, so, you know, as you know, you, you apply for your ethics and then they, if they send you back comments, you know, you have to respond to those comments and you, your research can be delayed. My my research was delayed to the point I couldn't collect data last year um, because the term ended in December, and that's when my ethics was approved in Australia. The term in, in the the school year in Japan, and then I was supposed to start my data collection this year in April, and of course COVID happened. So now I'm actually submitting a new ethics application with COVID precautions, um, with the chances of collecting data quite low. So it's it it, it is kind of a yeah, I, I agree with you. It's coming from an American American perspective. The the ethics are, are very rigorous in Australia, and I actually appreciate it because it helps me to think about my my research more. Did you did you find the ethics process was difficult at first when you first got to Australia, and now you really appreciate it? How do you feel about yes, that? Yes, yes. I, what I felt is that um, I became one one member of the ethic community later in order to learn about the process. So I volunteer to work on an ethic committee for three years. And I learned that everything that the ethic committee 
requires researchers to pay attention to or make sense to me. It keeps us more safe in terms of a lot of things, including mm. um, keeping relationship with the public. Mm. Did you have any respondents drop out of the study? Or did all uh, 10? Was this 10 original respondents and then 10 in the end? Uh, I actually asked for volunteers. So at first I thought about maybe in the area of 15 participants, but I think some students actually refuse. They may mm. be busy or they may be uninterested. So I ended up with 10, which is, I think is a very good number. And you're the one who conducted all the interviews by yourself? Yes, I did. Yes, I conducted all by myself. Well, see, I've never done research like this. I know um, I, I did an interview with Simon, which which you listened to. And he yes, conducted, uh, and then Jim King has also done hours and hours of, of interviews. How mm. do you find your own fatigue going into these? Um, do, you, do you record them and listen back? Do you try to stay in the present moment? Because if you're sitting uh, normally, for hours and yeah. hours, it's, it can be difficult. In the right? past, I used to record because I think it's part of the requirement of um, the ethic, not just ethic, but you, you have a supervisor. And most supervisor will advise students to record just not to miss out on any information. But over the years, you develop experience. It's the same way as you write lesson plan when you are started to become a teacher. And mm. then over the year, the lesson plan is in your head. So later on, I don't know, maybe part of me was lazy, but part of me was was experienced. So I stopped recording. I just take notes. And, and mm. throughout this interview, part of them is online forum, email, um, Zoom, and so on. But most of the time, I just type my notes and go back to them. Do you do you enjoy this kind of research? Because for me personally, I, I enjoy reading about this. Re this is something I yep. said before. I enjoy reading and learning about this kind of research and the findings. But personally, I, I think it would be quite taxing. I, I I actually do not do any qualitative research. Maybe I should, yeah. but it's something yeah. that I, I'm actually, I, I try to avoid. Okay. I think that the beautiful thing about qualitative research is you, ha you hear stories and stories are not boring, very mm. exciting. And every person's stories is very different from others. So you, in a way you, you would enjoy this process. It's like having a conversation. Now, I think, what what you're trying to say has to do with validity and reliability of project. How does it generalize over a larger population? Am, am I right? Or I mean, I, I have those concerns sometimes. I think there is validity yep. to qualitative yep. research. I I think for me, it's more the emotional drain yes. and the amount of time it yes. takes. Like you said, 10 respondents might not look like uh, a big number for someone reading the yep. chapter, but for you doing a two hour interview with each person, yes. you know, that's 20 hours, of course. So, I mean, yes. <laughs> the, yes. the time commitment is quite yes. intense. Running I would say. you ragged. Yes, I agree. Absolutely. What I think will make, will make up for that, um, um, that, that, that energy um, span is you love your project. You have to go into your project with passion you, you're desperate to know the answer, and, and this is something of your favorite um, content. So, so when I like something, I wouldn't feel tired anymore. I think, I think I'm similar to you. I also play music. Part of my background was was music, and and when you love to play a certain kind of song or or 
composition, you never tired. You keep playing it day after day, the same thing over and over again. For me, silent research is like music. Okay, that's that's it. I think Seiko said the same thing when I asked her about her PhD. She said she would she would have been reading these books anyway because she's interested in. It. I guess that's a great answer. If you, I Thank guess you, you wouldn't be pursuing you you wouldn't be pursuing this research unless you were really interested in it. Of course, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So this was an interesting study because you were you were exploring task design. You were exploring resp- uh, student response for different mm-hmm. task dynamics. Yep. Uh, you were looking at justi- justifications for response, and mm-hmm. then you were offering recommendations for classroom pedagogy. So a lot a lot went into this this study. Yes. As far as the, the task dynamics, mm-hmm. what what made you interested in task dynamics? Is it is it your varied experience teaching at different uh, different different cultures and different countries? Mm-hmm. I think one one of the first thing that's part of this interest between um in the relationship between task and silent is my observation because in at Monash University um we had this activity called peer review so sometimes mm. we ask the college to come in and help us so the college would sit throughout the lesson and then make comment on your teaching so that you can improve it it's like lesson study in Japan it's very much like that so Throughout these sessions that I observed, I realized that some of the students in the class are actually my students in other classes, in other subjects. And I realized that, for example, a student in my class who were, who were very articulate, in my observation was extremely quiet. And I was wondering why the same student, because people tend to, sometimes we tend to capture students' behavior as this is a silent student, this is Mm. a highly articulate student. We tend to see students as such. But then all of a sudden, I was astonished because the same students in one class can be very verbal, in another class can be absolutely silent. And I was observing and I was just trying to find out. And I think sometimes I have a conversation with them and students um, kind of hint at the content hinted different aspects of the lesson. And then one of those things that I captured that really caught my attention is when student mentioned, this activity inspired me, so I speak. That mm-hmm. activity is cognitively demanding, so I need a delayed time for thinking. And then I began to think that this was the um, incubation of my topic during a lot of ex- observation experiences. Well, let's let's go through a couple key terms and key concepts yes. before we get to the findings. One one thing that I thought was quite interesting on on page sixty five, you talk mm-hmm. about this concept of inner speech. Yes, um, and and you frame it in a way that I I never really thought about it before. You you write mm-hmm. depending on how silence is employed, the occurrence of inner speech in the learner system deserves to be viewed as a type of production, especially mm-hmm. when ideas or thoughts are taking shape in the mind. Now, mm-hmm. when you when you wrote that, I thought you know what he's right because sometimes I'm about to write an email, and mm-hmm. I'm actually writing what I'm going to write in my head before I write it. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I'm actually saying exactly. what I'm going to write. I do the same as you. We hear the voice in our head talking before we have those words written down. Right. So that is production. Mm. The problem is uh, deducing whether a student is doing that during the observed silent period, right? 
So that's that's um, the tough part. Silent, yes, I, I'm glad you you mentioned the silent period. I think the silent period is a totally different thing. Back in the 70s, um, I think the idea of silent period came from Dulé in 1982. Mm-hmm. He 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 was he was confused by the fact that many students in many classrooms around the world don't speak, and he thought this is an initial stage. So he started capturing this into the silent period with a he put a time frame on it and many scholars came in and and read it and they agree they thought maybe the silent period is a time when students were incubating input in order to mm-hmm. come to the next stage when they started to learn more language and produce more output but then again um, people have different ideas about the silent period it's so arbitrary that the silent period concept is very self-contradictory. Some people say it lasts a few months. Some people say it may last a few years. Some people say it will last a lifetime. Some people learning a language might not get to the point where they can speak that language. So what I know about the silent period is there's no research on the silent period. Mostly, it's it remains a hypothesis. People put a time frame on it with a deadline, believing that this period is undesirable and up to a point it will go away. And that silent well, period is totally different from silence. Well, let's, let's, let's even, yeah. if we're looking on a macro level of the silent yes. period, and, and then we compare it to the micro level of inside a classroom, whether we yes. don't know a student's ability level or not, and we see that they're being silent. Yes. Uh, one, one argument would be, yes, they could be producing inner speech. But the other right. argument, as you mentioned, is uh, with King's uh, research with the Japanese university students, sometimes there's a silence of disengagement. Okay. So for a researcher, I think it's sometimes hard to tell in the moment. Now, you were doing retrospective interviews, right? Um, yes. But in the moment, I think it's hard for teachers and researchers, because this is a great point, because there could be mm-hmm. inner speech of production in your L1 and then maybe a try to a translation's occurring to the L2. There could be an yes. inner speech in the L2 going on, or there could mm-hmm. be just silence of disengagement. So that, right. that's the thing that's really interesting for me is how can we really hone hone into whether someone is doing this production or whether they're just disengaged? How can we how can we you know how can we figure that out? Um, I think it's not necessary in my in my own perception. It's not necessary to figure out why student is being silent, but I think it's very important to put different understanding at the same time on our on our our radar instead of under it. Mm. So that we, we will have a network in the teaching process that will cover everything. So there may be, say, a student who is shy, another student who is afraid of making mistakes, another student who is um, off task, who is experiencing off task silence. They're not doing anything. They're, they're, they're pl- their mind is blank, yeah. Mm. But there are also like those students that you've just mentioned, those who are incubating thoughts, those who are giving it um, a lot of effort to actually process information, going through a rigorous mental process to produce ideas. Now, what we are, what we know is that there are things we know and there are things we don't. Things we don't is which students um, expressing silent in which way. There's no way to know especially when you step into a new class, I don't even bother to know. But what I bother is 
I would treat my students with an open mind, not treating all kinds of silence as a problem. So instead of identify what whose person whose silence is in what way, I would mm. identify the task that I develop so that it cover all kinds of silence. You know, like I, I will I will build into my task encouragement so that the shy student will feel safe to participate. But I also build into my task a process with instructions so that people who are prone to mental processing will have a chance to use their mental ability to, to learn. Okay, so you're taking more of a pedagogical approach mm-hmm. where you're understanding there's different types of silence, there's different processes of mental rehearsal, which you talked about, and then you're going to design your curriculum or your tasks or your your, your instructional method uh, accommodating to these different types of personalities. And it, I think you even write in the chapter you you, mm. you know you recommend teachers clear explicitly indicate um, to students it's okay to be silent at this moment. It's mm-hmm. a, it's a, the silence is is okay. It's encouraged at, at certain points in the class. Mm. Which I think is a is a good is a good way to to look at it. I guess I I get kind of hung up on why, and maybe mm-hmm. I should kind of take your approach where just accommodate different kinds of silence yeah. because it's impossible yeah. to know exactly what's going on. Um, yes, and then just try your best to create tasks and task dynamics to accommodate the the different students. I think that's that's a, I've never heard anyone uh, speak it in in this way. So I think that's that's really interesting for me. Mm-hmm. Thank you, thank you. Because sometimes you you step into the classroom and you're very confused. You're very easily confused by students. You don't know what to do. Um, from observation, research, and experience, I was thinking of two possibilities to treat students silent. One is you can scaffold participation. Suppose these students don't know how to participate. They are confused about the the rules of participation. They are they are intimidated by certain aspects of of the session. So what I do is, I do both, I do two things. Number one is I would scaffold participation. I would tell students the rule of participation, encourage them, and I would tell them that I'm not gonna judge uh, the quality of their their speech in any way. So I scaffold and encourage, that's one thing I do. Hopefully I tap into shyness and get students to trust me so that they will speak if they wish. Now, there will be a number of students who are comfortable with their silent, they actually choose to be silent. They're very confident. They feel that their silent is part of learning. So with these students, you have to come up with a different strategy. And one of those strategies would be, for example, I would give students a written communication task. Instead of having a verbal conversation, sometimes I ask students to reflect on a question by taking notes and then share that note with a, a colleague or a peer mm. in the class so that they would make a comment and write in under under um, what was written before by the peer. And then later on, if they wish, they can volunteer to share it with the rest of the class. Otherwise, they just keep it to themselves. And I've conducted this type of activities a number of times in different classes, and they work in the end sometimes I had um, a bit of a pro forma for students to write down how they feel. Some of them like it. Some of them feel, well, it's a night chain, but there should be more talking um, mm. in tasks. Yep. And I mean, another thing that you talk about in the chapter, and I think referencing a previous book 
um, was your research into harmony. And your point was well taken that this idea of harmony is interesting. So for example, a Japanese student studying in Australia might, might seek to attain harmony by being more verbal in the classroom, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. whereby in, in Japan, in that context, Mm they would seek mm. harmony by being less verbal in the classroom. So mm. it can be mm. complicated depending on yes. different students studying in which country. And th- those Japanese students in Australia, they understand talk and they understand silent. The first time I started to research on silent in Japan, I failed. So I went to Japan and I had 120 survey forms with me. I d- distributed them in, in high school classrooms. And I asked questions such as, how do you feel about your own silence? How do you use your silence? No, nobody could answer. When I got back the data, it was just disaster. You know, they, they couldn't answer the question. But the moment I started off researching on Japanese perspectives on silence by interviewing Japanese in Australia, those who have had both types of experience with silence and talk, they understand silence as much as they understand talk, and they they can respond to you very well. All right. Well, let's. Let's get into your your findings. Mm-hmm. Um, your your table, uh, your table on page seventy six. Yes. So you 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 provide the readers uh, a, a grid where there there's white, light gray, dark gray. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Can you do, can you talk about that table? Why why did you decide to organize the information that way? Um, I think the color it's just for easy recognition. For example more consistency I would put in a, in light gray, for example, so that the reader will see that a certain types of activity will elicit a certain more or less consistent response from across many different participants. For example, I put the same color for responses of the same kind, like certain tasks will elicit mostly talk or another kind of task will elicit mostly silent. So the color coding it's just for easy reading, you know, they, they will see. Or when it's mixed, I would put it in a different, different color. But the whole idea of doing that is I try to bring out a dominant pattern. And the dominant pattern in that research project is that more, more students respond in silent, thinking, in silent thinking to certain tasks, such as independent tasks, information gathering tasks. Likewise, there are tasks which elicit mostly talk, like fluency and communication tasks. So there's a pattern, you know, if, if you decide to desire a certain kind of task, there may be a tendency. It may be good to anticipate a certain kind of response, although this is not absolute. But part of the choice, part of the decision is definitely contingent upon individual personality and, and moment-to-moment development of classroom events. Well, let's let's get into your findings. Uh, you write, as the data suggests, the most unexpected finding from this study is that silence is not the dominant or preferred learning mode during task performance. Now, is this, mm-hmm. do you think, based because the students are studying in Australia? Yes, I think mo- you are right. Mo- mostly because students have been exposed to a different set of rules in the classroom. They, they started off um, adapting. And over the time, because these students have stayed in Australia at least two years or more, they they develop um, adaptability so that they no longer the same kind of learners as they used to be. Did the respondents indicate the nationality of their teachers? Because I'm interested if students would be less 
shy speaking to you than、uh-huh. they would speaking to me. I, I often wonder、yes. when I'm teaching、uh, in Japan, are are students、yes. more shy around the the Western students than they are with the Japanese、yes. students, or like、I、you being that, East Asian、yeah. descent?、Mm-hmm. I think that's a very good question.、Um, what I can see, and and part of it came from my data from data from previous research studies, is that I think nationality is not as important as teacher receptivity and personality, the the openness, the tolerance. Um, towards certain behavior, say because Monash University is a very extremely international university, where in the same classroom you can have fifty different nationalities, and lecturers likewise come from all kinds of background. Although predominantly there will be Anglo, white, Australian lecturers, but I think from observation I realize that students respond more to the people they trust,、um, and and that trust is constituted. By a range of factors, including like how cheerful you are, how accommodating, how friendly and warm, and 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 the way you respect student contribution rather than nationalities per se. Oh, well, that's interesting.、Um, all right. So, what about what about you?、Um, how do you deal with silence in the classroom? I think the way I deal with silence in the classroom is like I I use a network of、um, uh, multiple task types. First of all, I tap into the classroom by avoiding simplification. I don't treat students silent as homogeneous, but I'm as as a researcher, I am aware that there will be a range of multiple reasons for silence. So I will keep that in my consciousness, and then I will connect my task design with those ideas by very、um, diversifying my task types so that students will have.、Um, Their own space. For example, some need more time to learn. Some need more time to observe. Some need to spontaneously participate because they are so used to it. Some will need to reflect when there's a task that is cognitively demanding, and others need to have fun so they just enjoy talking. And and when I prepare different types of tasks in the same session, I make sure that. In in the same lesson, I never put in one top task type. There may be spontaneous task type. There may be more、um, cognitively demanding task type. I will put them both. Which sometimes I I mark them. The way I use is I call evolving, in involving, and engaging. Involving tasks are those tasks that allow people to speak straight away, like what's your hobby, what's your experience. Um, how do you understand this? You know those kinds of questions allow people to speak straight away, if they wish. But then there are also a kind of question that allow people time to think. I call them engaging activities or engaging questions. So with those questions, I will tell them the rule. I will say,、uh, feel free to chat with the person next to you. Feel free to take notes. I will get get back to you after say like five minutes. So. That's that's one way of designing tasks in the same lesson, and one more method is I would look at tasks in terms of process oriented and product oriented. Product oriented tasks are those, for example, read this book and then summarize it and then present it in five minutes. That's a product oriented task. With those types of tasks, I allow time for discussing among students or or time for thinking. 
but with process-oriented thoughts as, as um, say, um, tell us about your recent experience having to do with um, trouble in learning, for example. Anything that student can say straight away are like process-oriented tasks where the dynamic of classroom discussion matters the most rather than the outcome. In the end, maybe the teacher doesn't have to care about what product he or she receives, but the, the more, more attention will definitely go to um, how people share ideas. So I will make sure in every lesson I have involving and engaging tasks, I have process-oriented tasks and product-oriented tasks, and I have a number of strategies to encourage the shy members of the class to open up a little bit more because they trust me. So I put all of these things in the same lesson, if possible. Well, it's interesting what you said on page 89. You said experienced teachers incorporate silence more and something that I, I thought about and I reflected upon when I read that is when, mm -hmm. when I was a young teacher or an experienced teacher and I was observed, when I was a, my classes were observed, I felt pressure to get the students to produce. Mm -hmm. And whether that was an external or internal pressure, I can't, can't really remember. But as I've gotten older, I've gotten more comfortable with silence. And if someone were to observe my class and there'd be large you know, times and gaps of silence, I wouldn't be as uncomfortable where I remember mm. specifically thinking, oh, this person observing me probably thinks I should get the students to speak more. Mm. Does that make sense? I think, yes, absolutely. And I'm glad you mentioned that because um, if you are someone who is experienced in observing good lessons, you will realize that you don't have to bother about the teacher not speaking. Even when the teacher is keeping silent, you can understand what's going on and you understand the reason why the teacher is keeping quiet. Or even the students being quiet, though. Yes. yes um, yeah. Uh, I I think, I think some teachers, maybe uh, inexperienced or younger teachers listening to this, when their classes are observed, I think there's mm -hmm. a pressure. They feel yes. they need to show that the students are producing language to the observing person. Mm -hmm. Almost, mm -hmm. I need I need to show that what I, my teaching is working. Look, they're producing language, so they're afraid mm -hmm. to show large gaps of silence in an observed lesson time. Mm -hmm. And I agree with you that that seemed to happen with less experienced teachers than those who are more confident in teaching over a long, over a long time. Because some but teachers I, yeah. rate yep. their own, their own ability, their own teaching ability based mm -hmm. on a silence ratio, I mm -hmm. think. Mm -hmm. Right. I, so, I, think and, I agree and, with you. Yeah. And that's maybe not the right way to do it, but they think, yep. Oh, uh, because my my students aren't producing like the stu the students in the other class, um, I, I I'm doing something wrong, which isn't the case. Mm. And I think those ideas, those different ideas that teacher build with them, have to do with the debate at the current moment. I think when you talk about the silent theme in education, this area has been around for seventy years now. But when you look into real empirical research into silent. It's just the last 20 years. And, and the last 20 years has built so much in terms of silent debate. And when you look into this debate, you realize that there are three major tendencies to, to treat silence and talk. There will be a community of researchers who are actually bro talk. So these scholars will find ways to open students up so that they speak 
and and these researchers will start the design believing that silent may be a bit of a problem that you can look into. So there's a pro talk community. On the opposite, uh, on the contrary, there will be another community which I call the pro silence community. Um, recently, there are books such as um, silent um, contemplative. I think you've heard this came from the United States. Um, contemplative education, contemplative education, and contemplative pedagogy. So there will be there will be a community that are actually pro silent, and this um, these scholars realize that silent is something deep to be nurtured. Silent actually help learning, and then there's a third community which are both pro talk and pro silent. And this community prefer to look at silent and talk in some relationship. Silent and talk without hierarchy, but stay within uh, equilibrium. So they look at silence both way as something positive and something negative. I think this device what? somehow reflect what you just said about teachers confident in silent versus confidence in talk. Well, I had experience working at an Akaiwa, which is a mm -hmm. for-profit institution outside of the education system where parents uh, pay for their students to study English. And I feel like there's a bit of pressure to the teachers from the parents yes. to get their students to produce. Look, we're paying you all this money. Um, yeah, they might be shy or they're not speaking in their normal English classes, but I need them to produce because I want them to go out into the world. And... Um, I think that can be really damaging to the teachers because like you said, as you, as you get more experienced, you realize there's, it's more complicated than that. And just getting some exactly. kid to babble, to babble, you know, just verbalizing doesn't necessarily yes. mean that their language skills are going to be strengthened over the long, over the long time. Right. Um, exactly. but it, it's, it's this thing where the parents can see, Oh, my, 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 my kid's mouth is moving in English. That's great. Okay. Let me pay you the money. Which is which is something that happens here in I'm not sure other countries, but that's one of the the bad things about the Akaiwa system. There's a there's a huge push for production uh, yes. because it's a for profit business, and that's kind of what they're mm -hmm. promising. That's what that's what I they're think, promising yeah. their kids. Yes, I think what you just said, Jonathan, um, somehow tap into the same situation across many countries that I can say. I think we are people like us. We are educator um, developing in the age of. Um, neoliberalism, where education is content, contains provider, and students and parents are customers. So it's mm. a matter of taste and choices. When, when the customer go to provider, they will ask for certain product that they want to have. And as educators, treating ourselves as business people, we are in the position to provide what customers are actually asking for. And so we don't have much choices, but when we talk about like our ethical conscience, you know, we would behave differently, but from a different angle, from the business angle, we will, will have to kind of somehow please the parents because that's, that's what they seem to be asking for. Yeah. Well, and, and um, what you maybe, said, yep. Yep. Oh, go ahead. Reflects the situation elsewhere as well. Um, all right, maybe we're going to wrap up uh, maybe the last few questions here. I, I wanted to get sure. your your advice or your opinion on silence interventions. Mm -hmm. 
Have you done research with uh, silence interventions, and and what's your what's your opinion uh, about that? That my, my PhD. Um, when when I finished my PhD in two thousand and two in with Leeds Beckett University in the UK, my my whole PhD was actually a, an action research project, and it was an intervention. I went mm. into a university, and first of all, I asked them for the reason why they are silent. So they gave me the reason. I documented them and put them in a system, and then I would use that system to design lessons and I gave lessons to teachers to actually go into those classrooms and um, and conducted the ex- and conducted the experiment and I didn't succeed one reason why I did it because the teachers didn't like my lesson plan they thought the lesson plan was silly it's just against their habit the teaching habit is against their their beliefs and so um the data were not very good, although when I wrote, I, will ex- I explained in my PhD thesis why I failed, and I learned a lot from that failure. But my experience with intervention is you can do it, but it depends on who does it, you know. Like if you have a, a very good plan and you give it to a person who doesn't understand it, they might not do it the way you want it. On the, on the contrary, if you have just a very normal lesson, but you give it to an experienced teachers who know how to open up students, they will do it. So for me, intervention has certain values. You know, you you have a you have a goal. You go in and you want to see if that goal is achieved and why. You you will learn a lot from that process. But then I also think intervention is just reflective of half the truth because. When you decide to go into a classroom um, and conduct intervention to open students up so that they move from silence to speech, you actually assume that everyone's silence is is needed to is, is needed to change. But actually, you never know. Depending on context specific cases, there will be classes in which everybody needs to speak. But there will be classes in which there are students who are very comfortable and silent is their choice when we happen to conduct an intervention as such without learning about the background, then we are we are not getting what we want. No, yeah. One interesting thing that I, I found in this piece was you talked about how Korean students Whoa. You talked about how Korean students were more comfortable with with conversations that had no clear right or wrong answer, almost yes. an informal kind of dialogue, which I find Japanese students are not comfortable with that at all. Mm-hmm. They, yep. They're more comfortable with, with knowing right or wrong. Now they still might yes. be silent because they're afraid to say the yes. wrong answer. Um, yes. So I thought that was really interesting. So I think people need to be careful when, when they're reading this book, um, East Asian perspectives on silence in English education, even throughout the different countries, there's different perspectives on that. Uh, so I, I would say that a Japanese person would be actually more wary of a yes. conversation with that. What's the right or wrong answer? Oh, I can just give my own opinion. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I was kind of struck. I was kind of struck by that uh, big difference, mm-hmm. even within that this set of uh, ten respondents. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yep. As someone who have taught Chinese and Mongolian, Japanese, Korean um, students in the same class over the years, I realized that the personality, I think a lot of silence has to do with personality as well. Um, and, and I think Korean and Japanese students are just too different 
in the way they approach um, classroom participation. I think the Japanese tend to care more about quality, like you just said. Um, one, one important thing I want to share oh, oh, um, with this group of students, over the years, I documented how much they speak and how well they perform in the end, because many of us have the tendency to assume that the more articulate our students are, the better they learn. So I did this informal um, research over the years. I, I documented um, along the continuum. At, at one end, I had highly verbal students. At the other end, I have extremely quiet students. And I put students' names, I locate their names along this continuum, which I call preference for talk and silence. And then when I mark students' essay in the end, because I want to know the result of their study, how well they perform, the quality of their performance in essays. So I line them up in a different continuum, which is performance continuum. So people who perform best, I put them at one end, and people who perform the poorest, I put at the other end. So I have names laid out along the line. And then I look at the two continuum because I want to see parallelism. If, if the names in the two continuums are the same, it definitely has a pattern here. And it says that those who actually talk a lot will learn the best and the other way around. But I think over the year, I keep doing this throughout my semesters. I never see a pattern. You know, there, there will be uh, highly verbal students who perform very well and perform very poorly and the other way around. Likewise, for the for the silent members of of every class. And so it's very hard to tell, to conclude that silent make people learn less effectively compared to talkative students, you know. Well, maybe final question. Can I ask you about your your own journey um, learning English? Because I find the, the Vietnamese language pronunciation and the English pronunciation are, are quite different. Mm -hmm. And some of the Vietnamese students I have here in Japan, mm -hmm. um, this might offend some people to say, but I would That's find right. them right, yeah. much, much better than the Japanese students <laughs> as far oh, as their okay. work ethic. Um, you thought I was going to go the other way, didn't you? But <laughs> the yeah, the Vietnamese <laughs> students that I have here, mm -hmm. um, their English is much, much better than the Japanese students. Mm -hmm. uh, their pronunciation is maybe not quite as good here and there. Um, but I would see, I would find that they're less shy. Uh, they're they're definitely their their comprehension and their grammar is 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 stronger. Um, I've noticed that from like all the Vietnamese students that I've taught, and I guess that that brings the the other point about silence is you can have the inner in, the inner dialogue of the grammar and all the fundamentals can be strong, mm -hmm. and you can still mm -hmm. have pronunciation difficulties. Like for mm -hmm. example, I think Chinese has what six different tones. I, I think I would really struggle with that. Mm -hmm. um, certain Arabic sounds or, or uh, you know, so th that's another thing with just pronunciation, um, you know, maybe hesitating to, do you, do you have a final sort of comment on that at, with your own uh, journey as an English speaker? Um, I think, I think part of it has to do with the history of the country because v Vietnam was colonized by French for a hundred years. So there was a time when the language was kind of, temper with by the French and the Italian. And so the language has been changed to alphabetical, one thing. And some of the words from Italian and, and, and French enter into the language. And another thing is people were asked to learn, um, especially French, 
to survive schooling for a long time. And so the Vietnamese had a tradition of learning a European language. And so that actually helped the mindset of Vietnamese learners of languages. One, you've learned successful a European language, you will pick up another European mm. with less um, with less difficulty. Okay. And that is part of it because my family, uh, my, my dad speaks French, my grandfather. Mm. My, my grandfather is a very fluent French speaker. He lived in Paris all his life. So in my family, it's a French-speaking family except me. When I grew up, people already learned English, so I, lo- I, I didn't learn French anymore. But I think the tradition, the history, the mindset is already there as, as, a, as a software that somehow support your, your, your thinking in a different language. That's one, one way to explain it. Um, I do might you, have other reasons, but think, I think that's a big, big one. It, do you think it's easier for Vietnamese people to speak French than English as far as pronunciation? I think in terms of, yes, I think in terms of pronunciation, I think French pronunciation, because the language has been transcribed by Italian and French. So I'm surprised because last time, um, a few years back, I had an Italian colleague and he was trying to teach me a song. So we perform at International Day. So we perform an Italian song. So he gave me the song and he said, I'm going to teach you how to pronounce this first before you sing. But it happened that I read out loud. Like I, I can read Italian without understanding anything, but because <laughs> Vietnamese language was transcribed by French and Italian, it uh. they follow they follow the rule of pronunciation of those two languages. Very interesting. Okay, well, it was a pleasure talking uh, to you, Dat, and the uh, the chapter is silence, Likewise. talk, and in betweens. East Asian students' responses to task challenge in an Australian university. And the, the book is East Asian Perspectives on Silence in English Language Education. In the show notes, you can find links to the book and to uh, Dr. Bao's academia page. And so if, if you'd like to contact him, uh, please, is that okay if people contact you with any sure. extra questions? Sure, sure. Okay, well, again, thank you so much for coming on Lost thank in Citations. Thank you, Jonathan. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.